Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. Turning together to the book of Ezra, chapter 8, as we focus our attention on building a house and a heart for God, the book of Ezra actually has two parts, the first six chapters that deal with the exodus from Babylon back to Jerusalem, allowed by Cyrus, and as we come to the seventh chapter, Ezra introduces himself to us as one who himself will lead a group of some 6,000 Israelites, over 1,300 men, to Jerusalem to do the work of God there. We've opened our Bibles to Ezra, chapter 8 this evening. We begin our reading in the 36th verse. Ezra, chapter 8, beginning in verse 36. And they delivered the king's commissions unto the king's lieutenants and to the governors on this side of the river. That's Ezra and those who had traveled with him. And they furthered the people and the house of God. Now, when these things were done, the princes came to me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands doing according to their abominations, even the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, for they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and rulers hath been chief in this trespass. And when I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle, and plucked off the hair of my head and my beard, and I sat down astonished. Then were assembled unto me everyone that trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the transgression of those that had been carried away. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. I want to speak this evening on what it means to confront a corrupt culture. As we look in this passage, God has given to us an amazing story with great significance for the generation in which we're living. So let's ask the Lord to bless as we look into his word. Now, Father, I pray that you would help us with tender hearts to receive the instruction of your word tonight so that we might walk worthy of the high calling that you've given to us. Lord, burrow into our hearts this evening so that we'll not be people who sit back when sin is abounding, but rather that we would step forward, that we would be part of that vanguard that you would call out to challenge a corrupt culture whether it be round about us in our cities or near at hand in our church. So Lord, give us a tender heart and me especially this evening as we share this message together. And we'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Not long ago it happened again. Someone posted something scandalous on Facebook. Someone pointed out to me what had been posted. And I have to say I was shocked but I find myself becoming increasingly less shocked. It seems that Facebook has become the marketplace for scandals to be revealed. These are the words that I read, words that were penned by a young man that I've known since he was in elementary school. He said, I guess it's National Coming Out Day. Normally I hate these quasi-holidays, but for whatever reason, I'm finding this a good opportunity to let more people know something about me that took me a long time to accept about myself. I'm gay. One of the reasons I felt compelled to come out in a more public way 
is to provide encouragement to anyone with a similar background and also provide a data point to anyone that doesn't know a lot of gay people. Now, the young people who shared this posting went to a Bible college to study to enter into the ministry. He grew up in high school declaring that he sensed the call of God upon his life. I was amazed when I looked at this post. There were 101 likes or loves or care emojis. There were 108 comments. And because I've known this person for so long, I recognize the people making the comments. One of his former youth staff members wrote, we love you. His former youth pastor wrote, sharing something this personal publicly requires a lot of transparency and vulnerability. Prayers and affection for you, my friend. His former dorm supervisor at the Christian college he attended wrote, I could not be more proud of you. More importantly, I hope you're proud of you. Sharing anything so personal can be tough. Vulnerability opens us up to scrutiny. I firmly believe that, that it's through this type of courageous and gracious sharing that will bring others along and help them see that this is what love looks like. A fellow worker at the Christian college that he attended wrote, I appreciate you and all the encouragement you've been to me and my family over the years. Thanks for being a great friend. I'm also grateful for your leadership and the impact that you're making on lives. How should a Christian respond to what really indeed is a scandalous situation? Do we all have a responsibility when someone is falling into deep sin? Or is it just the responsibility of the few? Might failure to, to confront a corrupt culture ultimately bring more confusion and more corruption? I want us to ask this evening, as we've opened our Bibles to the book of Ezra, how would Ezra have responded? We've opened our Bibles this evening to Ezra, and we're going to be looking significantly at chapter 9 and chapter 10. But let's remember that Ezra chapters 7 through 10 contain a detailed diary of a devoted servant of God. He shares his heritage in the first verses of chapter 7, how that he was a Levite, born ever so close to the high priestly family. He shares his occupation in verse 6 of chapter 7. Ezra says, I was a ready scribe, a well-trained religious leader. He shares how he, tra he tra would travel from Babylon to Jerusalem, having the opportunity to lead others that they would explore and know a more intimate walk with God. For in Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10, Ezra says, He prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Now Ezra's personal diary begins on a high in Ezra chapter 7, as King Artaxerxes gives him the authority to lead people with him from the land of captivity and shame to the land of promise and blessing. It begins on a high, but... Ezra ends on a low. Ezra ends by sharing with us some griefs of his heart that were ever so tender and for us are ever so instructive. With the king's commission in hand, Ezra led 1,496 men. 1,496 men, some 6,000 family members on a four-month journey to Jerusalem. He's journeying to Jerusalem in order to beautify the temple in order to give instruction to the people who are residing there, in order to solidify the nation that has the promise of God that through this nation, the Messiah would come. As we open our Bibles this evening to Ezra chapter 9, 
Ezra has only been in the city of Jerusalem for a little over four months. He was born in Babylonian captivity. When he arrives back in Jerusalem, he's arriving at the homeland, of course, of the Jews. He's arriving with great anticipation. And suddenly he finds himself confronted with a scandalous sin. The men of Israel were violating the law of Moses by marrying foreign women. Verse 2 of chapter 9, they have taken of, the, of their daughters, the daughters of the Moabites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hittites. They have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons. And when we open to Ezra chapter 9 and 10, I think we find a template for those who would stand when scandal arises. And I hope you'll follow along carefully this evening, and I hope you'll find yourself with a tender heart this evening. So we discover in this passage counsel for those who would confront a corrupt culture. We begin by noting in this passage that we need to be biblically prepared. We need to be biblically prepared. Ezra chapter 9 and verse 1 begins, after all, with a very important conjunction. Now, when these things were done. This verse brings us back in time to the earlier chapters in which Ezra has introduced himself to us. He has told us in Ezra chapter 7 and verse 6 that he was a ready scribe. In other words, he had given his youth to the study of the law of God. He prepared himself to be an effective servant for God in his generation by being a student of God's word. He was well versed in scriptural truth. Are you? We're living in a generation where issues are facing us every day. Are you prepared? The Word of God reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 3 that we're to sanctify the Lord God always in our hearts, being ready always to give an answer to every man that asks us of the reason of the hope that is in us with meekness and with fear. How would you respond if tomorrow your Christian friend came to you and they were wrestling over a decision to have an abortion? How would you respond if your Christian friend called you this evening to let you know that they were moving in with their boyfriend or their girlfriend? How would you respond if you found out that a friend of yours had recently gotten engaged to someone who's not a believer or perhaps was dating an unbeliever? The Bible is the only compass for those who would survive in a corrupt culture. It is that lamp unto our feet. It is that light unto our path. Our Savior prayed before giving himself on the cross of Calvary, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. The touchstone, the lamp of truth for us and for every generation is the word of God. Are you prepared to answer biblically when confronted with problems that are mounting and mounting and mounting? Be prepared. If you would be a light in a corrupt culture, you must be prepared. And more than that, you need to be clearly informed. Ezra did not seek out the scandal of his times. The scandal came to him. For after these things were done, after he led these fellow pilgrims back to Jerusalem, after he had deposited the funds that had been provided by Artaxerxes, after he'd accomplished the work that he'd been given to do, after these things, 
The Word of God says the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, are identified by the princes who came to Ezra. And the princes said, Ezra, this is happening. These that we've looked up to are allowing their sons and themselves to marry those that are not believers. They're marrying the pagans of our region. I want you to notice in this passage that the witnesses that came to him were credible. And their testimony was very specific. And that's very important. While Ezra was not looking for this moment in time, he was certainly not covetous of this as any kind of an opportunity. He recognized immediately when it was the princes of the people who were coming to him that these were credible witnesses and that what they said was very specific. And that's important, and that's important not only for Ezra, it's important for us. You see, Deuteronomy says in chapter 19 that one witness will not rise up and corrupt a man for any iniquity or for any sin, but in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact will be established. Remember how Proverbs reminds us that he that answers a matter before he hears it, it's folly and a shame unto him. There are many believers who drift into sin because so many others play the spiritual ostrich. They put their head in the sand, they put their fingers in the ears, and they hope that what they perhaps have heard isn't real and they move on. Now we should not show any type of morbid fascination in hearing about the sins of others who claim the name of Christ. But neither should we hide when such things are brought to our attention. We should be part of the solution if God has called us to be part of the solution. Be clearly informed and then be deeply aggrieved. Be deeply aggrieved. When Ezra heard of the sin of his own countrymen, he responded deeply He responded emotionally. Look at verse 3. And when I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle. I plucked off the hair of my head and my beard, and I sat down astonished. Ezra was appalled by the sin that he heard about. It caused his heart to tremble before God. Those who would confront a corrupt culture must be careful to not allow themselves to be desensitized. We are living at a time when the tide of corruption is rising. Listen, Christians all around us are becoming increasingly desensitized to what should be understood by all Bible-believing Christians as scandalous sins. Be deeply aggrieved. Ezra will say it this way. He freaked out. That's the only way you can really say it. That's my translation of verse 3. After all, the beard was a badge of honor to the Jewish men. You'll remember how David had sent some ambassadors on a journey to represent him in 2 Samuel chapter 10. How they were abused and their beards were shaved and their clothing was torn by those that they went to speak with. How they were so ashamed that David gave them the opportunity to stay a while in Jericho until their beards were restored. Ezra responded righteously to a very difficult message that he'd heard. How do you respond? Now I know there may be someone this evening who says, well, Pastor Phelps, this is the Old Testament, right? 
It's the Old Testament. Don't you realize that 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is the New Testament? And the New Testament says that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And you realize that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, as the Apostle Paul shares that principle of the leaven, he's sharing that principle of the leaven with the Corinthian church, a believing church. And someone in that church was having a scandalous affair with his stepmother. And the Apostle Paul says to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and now you're puffed up? Should you not rather mourn? Ezra is setting for us an example of how a righteous heart responds to a real matter of sin. Hebrews chapter 13 reminds us that when it comes to certain sins, like the sin that was exposed recently on the internet, that God says, whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. This is not a matter of interpretation. This is a matter of biblical obligation. Alexander Pope was right when he said, sin is a monster of such awful mean that to be feared needs but to be seen. But seen too oft, familiar with face. We first endure, then we pity, and then we embrace. We've come past the point of endurance when youth pastors and youth workers and Christian college dormitory supervisors are giving an attaboy to someone who's come out. We ought to be appalled. We ought to be deeply grieved. And we ought to be willing to be publicly observed. What Ezra does puts him on the front lines. For he says in verse 3, He rent his garment and his mantle, plucked off the hair of his head and his beard, and sat down astonished. Then were assembled unto me every one that trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the transgression of those that had been carried away. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. No one in the community could doubt what Ezra thought about intermarriage. He made his thoughts very public by the position that he took. In fact, in chapter 10 and verse 1, we read, Now when Ezra had prayed and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children, for the people wept very sore. How do you respond? We are so tempted when we face off with sin to remain anonymous, not to take a stand, for after all, we don't want to be thought of as heartless or unkind, that often we allow sin to go unchallenged. It was Edwin Burke who said the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Perhaps you're like me. You don't want to drive someone away, especially if it's a family member. And all of us have family members who find themselves along a pathway that we know is going to bring great destruction. And so often we back off. What if it's our children, after all? We want to have a relationship with our children. You know, there's something interesting about studying parenting. One parenting style is called the excuse-making parent. That parenting style begins when a child is very, very little. 
the child does something naughty and to save face in the community, the parent will say, oh, he never acts like that. He must be teething or she, she must have an upset stomach or it must be that they didn't get to bed on time last night or, or maybe they ate too much sugar. You know, if you're looking for an excuse for your child's bad behavior, <laughs> you know, you'll never lack one. But when the child grows up hearing you make excuses during their youth, their wee years, by the time they get to upper elementary, they kind of figure it out and start offering you the excuses themselves. Dad, it's not my fault this child did this to me. Dad, it's not my fault the teacher said this to me. It's not my fault the teacher rolled his eyes at me. Beware. If you're an excuse-making parent, what happens is ever so sad. There's a pathology here. Here's what will happen. Your child will learn that you will lie for them. And when your child learns that you will lie for them, your child will no longer have respect for you. And when your child loses respect for you, your child looks for a counterculture that they respect, where they will be affirmed and where they will be loved. Having raised six, I can tell you that there have been many times where our children have done things that we find ourselves a little bit embarrassed about. And we've learned a phrase. We've learned it quite well. It goes like this. Thank you for pointing that out to us. We're working on that. The voice of anyone who comes to us about our children is always a friendly voice. And we indeed will be working on that. But be careful how you respond. The same thing happens with a permissive parenting style. The permissive parent allows the child to do and to do and to do without much structure or boundary. And again, along the way, somewhere as the child grows older, they come to discover they're kind of on their own and their parent won't stand up even for truth. And especially when they understand that God has given their parent a responsibility to stand up for truth. The respect for the parent again is gone and a counterculture counter comes to be desirable. There is a tension point that we all need to understand that rules without love will bring rebellion. And love without rules will bring confusion. But rules with love will bring convictions. May God help us to be the kind of people who want to foster round about us, whether in the foyer or in the family, convictions. We need to be willing to be publicly observed and completely humble. Ezra is a model of complete humility. While some respond to a scandal with self-righteousness and, well, it would never happen to me, and scorning, the person who's involved, I read in verse 5 that at the evening sacrifice, Ezra rose up with great heaviness, and having rent his garment and his mantle, he fell upon his knees, he spread out his hands unto the Lord his God. There's no sanctimonious spirit here. There's no high and mighty, I'm better than anyone else here. There's a sincere man of God here who's weeping over the sins of others. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 reminds us in verse 12, Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. And Galatians chapter 6 says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken with a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one. How? In a spirit of meekness, considering also yourself, lest you likewise be tempted. 
Ezra's actions and his words demonstrate his humility of heart. He's on his knees. His hands are spread out in dependence to his God. And he begins his prayer ever so passionately in verse 6 as he says, Oh my God, I'm ashamed and I blush to lift up my face. We discover, of course, that those who would make a difference in a culture of corruption earnestly pray. Ezra's prayer is worthy of our careful study. But I want to just point out a couple of things along the way. Notice the personal pronouns in verses 6 and 7. I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God, for our iniquities are increased over our head. And our trespasses grown up under the heavens. Since the days of our fathers have we been a great trespass unto this day, and our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to a spoil and confusion of face, as it is this day. And now for a little space, grace has been showed from the Lord God to leave us a remnant, to escape, to give us a nail in this holy place. Ezra... Nehemiah and Daniel, all three, exhibit something that we ought to be moved by. They identify with the sins of their people. In Nehemiah chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 9, when both of these Old Testament leaders find out about the sin that is plaguing their people, they both pray just like Ezra prays. It's not about them, it's about us. You see, the community of faith is a community of faith. And when one person in that community of faith is heading down a pathway that will bring great pain, is heading into the place of sin, the whole body ought to suffer with that one, the Bible tells us. Not an impudent spirit of, well, I'm better than you. No, there's none of that here. In earnest prayer, he identifies with the sins of his people because he understood, listen, he understood the risk that sin brought to his community. He understood that intermarriage would lead to idolatry. He understood that idolatry would lead to captivity. He understood that captivity would lead to shame. He understood the peril that was coming to his people. He was a ready scribe, so he'd read from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7 and the third verse, Neither shalt thou make marriages with them, for they will turn away thy sons from following me, that they may serve other gods. He understood that the end result of that marriage could be syncretism religiously and the pain that that would bring. Do you understand? 1 Corinthians 15.33 Evil communications corrupt good manners. Do you understand what the Word of God tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3? In fact, let's turn there, put a mark here where we are, and go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 for just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I want you to see the 17th verse with me this evening. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're about to gather around the Lord's table. When Charles Spurgeon pastored the great Tabernacle Baptist Church in London, England, before a person could join the church, a delegation of the church's leaders was sent to the person who was candidating for membership to that person's home, neighborhood, and workplace to inquire about the testimony of the one who came wanting to be a member. Without a proper vetting of the testimony, no one joined the tabernacle. And after having joined the tabernacle, each year, each member was given a communion card 
It had 12 tabs on it. Communion was served monthly, much as it is here. The deacons of the church gathered the tabs to find out who wasn't there. If someone wasn't there over a period of time, they were contacted and immediately removed from the church rolls because the congregation understood the necessity of an active membership and the necessity of being sure that every part of that membership was walking with the Lord to the best of their ability. Why were they so careful and why must we be so careful? We open to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and we read in verse 17, If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. And here's a place where we ought to be thankful for the King James Version. Ye in the King James is plural. And so in the context here we're reading, if any man defile the temple of God, him will God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, and you collectively, as a community, you represent the temple of God. Ezra understood the risks that sin brought to his community. Do you also understand that risk? There's more in this passage as we turn back to the book of Ezra, the ninth chapter. We discover in Ezra chapters 9 and 10 something that I think is wonderful in the midst of a very bleak and dark moment in Ezra's history, in Ezra's life, in the life of Israel. The fifth verse of Ezra chapter 9, this little phrase, and at the evening sacrifice... Why, the evening sacrifice in the Old Testament always pointed to a better sacrifice. The evening sacrifice pointed to the cross of Calvary. When Jesus said, it is finished, he did so directly at the time of the evening sacrifice. These words are placed in this passage to give all of us hope. And Ezra did indeed have hope. For he says in verse 8, Lord, you have given to us a little nail in this holy place. You've allowed a stake to be put down in the ground, so to speak. You've given us some hope of permanence and some hope of your blessing. And the Bible tells us in Ezra chapter 10 and verse 1, having prayed and wept and cast himself down, many people gathered around Ezra. And in verse 2, Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, answered and said to Ezra, we have trespassed against our God and have taken strange wives of the people of the land. Yet now there's hope in Israel concerning this thing. How did he find hope? Well, no doubt he knew Deuteronomy chapter 30. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, God had told the children of Israel that if they sinned, they would be taken captive even to foreign lands. But if they turned... If they turned back and repented of their sin, he would regather them and forgive their sin and heal their land. Friend, this evening we're talking about a very sobering topic. But how good to know that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. And how good to know individually that's true and how good to know corporately that's true. What tragedy has befallen the church of Christ in this generation that scandalous sins have become common. And when someone announces their scandalous sin, they get nothing but thumbs up and positive comments on the internet. One could be tempted to be hopeless, but how good to know that God looks upon the humble and the contrite. And while he resisteth the proud, he gives grace unto the humble. Be spiritually hopeful that God can turn that dreadful sin 
that God can turn it by His grace even to blessing and be patiently confrontational. Ezra reacted deeply to the scandalous sin of his countrymen, but he responded reasonably. While he responded ever so deeply and ever so immediately as to bring about a rather public scene, I read here when Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, spoke, he gave counsel to Ezra, verse 3, Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and such as are born of them, that's the children of these unions, according to the counsel of my Lord and those that tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law, arise, for this matter belongeth unto thee, and we also will be with thee, be of good courage, and do it. And Ezra arose and made the chief priests and Levites and all Israel to swear that they should do according to this word, and they swear. And Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Johanan, the son of Elishab. When he came thither, he did eat no bread nor drink water, for he mourned because of the transgression of them that had been carried away. And they made proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem unto all the children of the captivity that they should gather themselves together unto Jerusalem, that whosoever would not come within three days, according to the counsel of the princes and the elders and all his subjects, should be forfeited and himself separated from the congregation of those that had been carried away. You've got three days, folks, the announcement goes out. You've got three days to hustle to Jerusalem doesn't matter what your affairs are right now, we have something of far greater importance. And so the people gathered. And the Bible tells us in verse 9, Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered themselves together unto Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month, and on the twentieth day of the month, that all the people sat in the street of the house of God, trembling because of this matter, and because of the great rain. And the Word of God tells us, Ezra and the priests stood up, and said unto them, You have transgressed and have taken strange wives to increase the trespass of Israel. Now therefore make confession unto the Lord God of your fathers and do his pleasure and separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the strange wives. And all the congregation answered and said with a loud voice, As thou hast said, so must we do. But the people are many. It's the time of much rain. We're not able to stand without, neither is the work to be done in one day or two, for we're many that have transgressed in this thing. And so a plan is hatched. Verse 14 gives us the plan. Let now our rulers of all the congregations stand, and let all of them which have taken strange wives in our cities come at appointed times, and with them the elders of every city and the judges thereof, until the fierce wrath of the Lord our God for this matter be turned from us. And so it was, as we read in chapter 10, that one by one those who have taken to themselves strange wives appear before the judges. And one by one, those marriages are broken up. And that's a whole other study. But by the end of chapter 10, we discover that obedience is far more important, listen, than sympathy. And faith in the Word of God and obedience to God's Word is far more important than our feelings. So putting faith first and actively obeying God, we discover in this passage that there were 113 men in Israel who had married women who were Hittites and Canaanites and Ammonites. They had violated the laws of Moses. Now wait a minute. Perspective. It had been 56 years before Ezra returned to the land. 
that Zerubbabel had gone back to the land, and Zerubbabel had gone back to the land with over 50,000 people 56 years earlier. When Ezra came back to the land, he carried with him some 6,000 people. It's conservative to say there were hundreds of thousands of people living in Judah. And of the hundreds of thousands of people living in Judah, 113 had committed this sin. Isn't that kind of a radical response for such a minuscule problem? How dare we consider a minuscule problem when God says it's a sin? And so we read in this passage that 17 priests and 10 Levites were numbered among the 113 men who were discovered. And we learn that the right response to sin is radical. The right response to sin is radical. So can I ask you a question tonight? How do you respond when you find out that your Christian friend has a problem with pornography? How do you respond when you find out that your Christian friend is coming out? How do you respond when you find out that your Christian friend is dating someone who's lost and you know that 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 39 says they may marry but only in the Lord? How do you respond when you find out that a Christian friend is living with someone that's not their spouse? How do we respond? I know how Ezra responded. And I know that the Word of God challenges us to warn them that are unruly. New Testament believers are called upon to respond as well. May God give us the grace to respond wisely. It was Bishop Ryle who said, Christ is never truly valued until sin is clearly seen. So the one who came out received a note from me. It was a private messenger note. I wrote, I'm writing to let you know that I'm praying for you. I see that you've identified as gay. God's word is very clear about homosexuality. It's sin. While none of us is without sin, we're not showing God's love for one another when we don't warn each other or make ourselves available to help. I want you to know I'm praying that God will turn your heart from the path that you're on. I cited Proverbs 13, verse 15. The way of wickedness is hard. Feel free to connect if I can be of any help to you. And yes, I heard back. Hi, Pastor Phelps. I appreciate your message and your prayers for me. I know you're coming from a place of love and respect. And I want you to know that I respect you. Wishing you and your family well. I will definitely keep in mind your offer to chat. I don't know what the end will be. But I know this. Every one of us is commissioned to get involved when we see corruption in our Christian culture. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.